science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories from scientists who feel a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, sometimes science can be overwhelming. As you might imagine, I meet a lot of scientists who feel overwhelmed. It seems like every year or so a debate springs up on science Twitter about something like, should grad students work 60 hours in the lab every week, or should they work 100 should they be allowed to ever stop working? Should they be allowed to have friends and or families? <laughs> Should they be allowed to have feelings? <laughs> so I think it's no wonder that so many of them are overwhelmed. <laughs> and we'll hear from two of them today. Our first story is from Fiona Calvert. It was recorded in March 2018 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, UK. as part of a show we produced in partnership with the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. The theme that night was regeneration. I'm a crier. I cry at anything and everything. Any extreme emotion has me sobbing. In fact, there are two things I do that I know make me cry and I refuse to give them up. Number one, when I have the flat to myself, the first thing I do is put on my pajamas, put on Grey's Anatomy, and prepare to sob. <laughs> Number two, my car. I'm all for saving the environment and really want to participate in my work's eco-friendly car sharing scheme, but I can't. There's nothing I like more than after a hard day of work, getting in my car, putting on those power ballads, and sobbing for my 20-minute drive home. <laughs> It's essentially my therapy. So yeah, I love to cry. I find it cathartic. And so when I started my PhD, I knew I was gonna spend four years crying. <laughs> and I didn't make it easy on myself. Uh, I am doing a PhD in an area I don't have a background in. I work with stem cells, which are notoriously fiddly and frustrating to work with. And I thought it would be fun to learn how to code while I was doing this at the same time. So yeah, I expected to feel overwhelmed and frustrated and to be in tears for four years. But when I started, I promised myself one thing. I would always cry in private. And not just those kind of small t tears where a few kind of teardrops roll down your cheeks and then you man up and move on. Not just those, the full-on meltdowns. I would always make it back to my car. All the ladies Lou if times got really, really desperate. You see, I started my PhD not that long after the whole Tim Hunt thing happened. And for those of you that don't know, Tim Hunt is a Nobel Prize winning scientist who in the 2000s won the prize for his work on cell division. So he's pretty famous. And he caused a little stir when in 2015 he was giving a speech to female journalists and scientists. And to cut a long story short, he was quoted as saying, three things happen when girls are in the lab. You fall in love with them, they fall in love with you, and when you criticize them, they cry. 
I'd never really thought of myself as a woman in science before. My undergrad was pretty mixed. My PhD cohort is almost 50-50. And at the institute I work at, there are plenty of badass female scientists to look up to. But unsurprisingly, something about that comment about crying really struck a chord with me. Suddenly I felt this fear. I was so aware of my ability to cry. And while many other women took to Twitter to kind of hit back at Tim Hunt and prove him wrong, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm that stereotype. Criticism definitely makes me cry. And so suddenly I felt this pressure, pressure I put on myself and this pressure to not let women in science down. And I promised myself I would always cry in private. And I managed for a while. You know, I worked really hard to fight back those tears in the moments where I would normally well up. And not just the little moments, even those really big moments, like when the cells that I spent three months engineering all died, or when our minus 80 freezer broke overnight and we came in in the morning to find a puddle of water, even then, I made it to the toilet to cry. And then a year ago, I broke my promise. Like, really broke my promise. I have my first year report due later that day. And I'm feeling pretty good. I have a draft submitted. My supervisor's reading it for one last time. And I'm just about to get in my car and I hear that ping of an email in my inbox. I check it and my supervisor's left me an email to say, quite casually, that the analysis I've been learning to do for three months is probably wrong. And we should remove it from the report and replace it with this new analysis that I have no idea how to do. Now, like I told you, I'm learning to code. Me not having a clue what I'm doing is not unusual in this PhD. But in that moment, I feel so overwhelmed that the tears start flooding. And I get in my car and as per usual, I cry for that whole 20 minute drive. But something's different. When I pull into the car park and I start walking to the cafe, I can't stop crying. So now I'm in my work cafe crying my eyes out. And I really wish I could tell you it's that crying you see in movies where tears silently and dramatically roll down my cheeks and no one notices. It's not. I am ugly crying. <laughs> that kind of crying where you're wailing out loud and you're sweating because you're crying so much. Yeah. I've got the snot too. The snot's running out my nose. But I don't care because I'm crying. And you probably think, oh, she's crying in the cafe, at work, at peak morning coffee time. It can't get much worse, right? Wrong. Through the haze of my tears, I spot my worst nightmare across the room, my supervisor. And I try hurriedly to wipe away the snot so he might not notice, but the pander eyes and the sobbing are a dead giveaway. I'm upset and he knows it. He starts to approach and my heart sinks. And now he's at my table and he looks confused, concerned, maybe a little scared. And he looks at me and says, do you think we should go somewhere a bit more private to talk about this? And at that point, I'm crushed because his opinion of me must be at an all-time low. He thinks I can't cope with this PhD and suddenly all those comments from Tim Hunt flow through my mind and I feel like I'm crying for the original reason. I'm crying because I'm embarrassed and now I'm crying because I'm letting women in science down. 
And I realized my PhD supervisor, he's never had a female PhD student before. And I can't imagine his previous male PhD students doing this. So we find a meeting room. And now I'm at that hyperventilating stage of crying. You know, the time when you're like, I just can't. <laughs> I'm doing that. And I'm trying to explain what's going on. And after a very long time, interrupted by many sobs, I get my words out. And I tell him that I feel like I can't do this. I feel like I am not learning this quick enough. And this new analysis, I have no idea what it even means. And then there's this pause. And he looks at me and he's freaked out. Then something amazing happens. My supervisor responds in the best way possible. He's kind, he's calming, he's reassuring. He even musters up the courage to joke that, of course I'm crying when my idiot supervisor emails me on the day of hand-in asking me to redo everything. And he reminds me that what I'm doing is hard and it's not something I'm gonna learn to do overnight. He then takes time out of his busy schedule to sit with me and work through this analysis. And as we work through it together, and he's not getting frustrated when he has to tell me how to do things that he's told me a hundred times before, I realize there are little bits of it that I do know. There are bits of it that I can do. And it reminds me that I am learning slowly, but I am learning. And I get my report in on time. And it is by far not the best piece of work I've ever written. But I think it's probably the one I'm most proud of. Because that's the overwhelming feeling I have about this PhD, pride. I have never had to work so hard or be pushed outside of my comfort zone or felt like I couldn't do something more than during this PhD. And it's small wins, like handing that report in on time or differentiating my stem cells for the first time or getting that piece of code to run error-free. Those small wins remind me that not only am I going to do this, I'm going to kick ass while I do it. Now, a year on from that very public crying experience, I'm pretty grateful that it happened. As far as I know, my supervisor's opinion of me hasn't changed. He still pushes me and wants me to learn and treats me the same as he does with everyone else. And although I'd cried many times in private before, this first public experience taught me a lot. It taught me that while there are men in science that are assholes, not all men believe what Tim Hunt said. That is in no way the majority. It also showed me that while a PhD often feels like this giant solo expedition, it's more than okay to ask for some help. Most importantly, it showed me that who cares if I cry at work? If a man feels uncomfortable with my crying, that is his problem, not mine. Being a woman in science comes with a lot of obstacles, challenges, and judgments but me crying does not make me a bad scientist. And the weight of reputation of women in science does not rest solely on my shoulders. Now I am proud that my PhD makes me cry. I am proud that I do something that I love and feel is worthwhile enough to cry about.
That was Fiona Calvert. Fiona is a third-year PhD student at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where she focuses on the role of the immune system in Alzheimer's disease. She uses stem cells to understand how genetic mutations can affect the functions of microglia, a vital immune cell in the brain. Fiona is also passionate about science communication, and she's going to be working with us to bring StoryQuiter to Cambridge again for future shows, so come see us with Fiona in Cambridge in the new year. Our next story today is from Shane Hanlon. It was recorded in February 2018 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was Unbeaten Path. I'm sitting in a living room, minding my own business, beer in hand, when one of my partner's friends comes up and asks me, so Shane, what do you do? I've been dreading this question, but also expecting it. I live in D.C., a town where stories about profession are traded back and forth like currency. People are constantly trying to one-up each other with these exchanges like Venmo interactions. But I realized, for me at least, the answer to this question isn't so simple. I have a PhD. I did the grad school thing. I studied amphibians and reptiles. Um, If you ask my parents what I did, I counted frogs and turtles, which is kind of like saying the Cubs will win the World Series or that Congress will pass a bill. It happens. It's just rare. (laughs) So, so... I ended up getting my PhD, and I, um, after I graduated, I was at a crossroads. So I loved and still love research, all right? I loved the ivory tower, the unencumbered pursuit of knowledge, um, the flexible work schedule. But I always wondered what kind of an impact was I making? So as scientists, we prepare, we execute, and then we publish our research. And then we start it all over. But how often do we step back and ask, why? Why am I doing this? Where is this research going? What difference am I making? I wanted to figure that out. So I left the ivory tower. And again, not because I hated academia, but because I wanted to see what else was out there. I wanted to do more. I moved to D.C. to do the equivalent of a policy postdoc, and then I did another pretty prestigious fellowship, and then I was promptly unemployed. Uh, Grad school does not teach you about unemployment, and it hit me hard. I had had done all the things, though. I had... had published a bunch, I got grants, I taught, I did the research, all of those things. But I was still, like, I just didn't know what what happened. I went from being on top of the world to being unemployed and living in my brother and sister-in-law's spare bedroom, doing my damnedest to disclose neither of those facts on OkCupid dates. And I was just left wondering why, like, what happened? Did I not, did I not network hard enough? Did I not pass out enough business cards? Did I not wear a nice enough suit? And this sounds ridiculous, but I was lost adrift for the first time outside of the ivory tower. It turns out that I don't do so well when left to my own thoughts. 
Uh, so in order to kind of get out of this funk and uh, fill the unemployment void, I picked up some side hustles to help pay the bills and to, again, kind of get out of this uh, fun employment, which, by the way, is a horseshit term. Uh, I taught a course in rural Pennsylvania where I got to go out into the wilderness with students and teach disease ecology, which was great because it got me back to research and it got me out of the unemployment funk. I ended up uh, writing questions for science bowls, and I worked on a, a policy panel, kind of a mock science policy panel. I ended up picking up a side job at the zoo, where I get to take mostly kids behind the scenes and get really up close and personal with the exhibits, with the animals. And then we spend the night at the zoo, camping out in tents on the lawn. I will tell you... Hearing lions roar, wolves howl, seals bark, and DC traffic all in the same thing is, uh, is an experience that I won't, um, I won't soon forget. And I love doing all of these things, but it wasn't until I got my current full-time job that I felt truly settled. Ish. Um, when it came time for me to cull all of these side hustles now turned extracurriculars, I couldn't. Something wouldn't let me quit them. I, I felt like the lead in a Nicholas Sparks novel. <laughs> I worried that I was a grass is always greener guy. I remember when I was applying to jobs, I would apply to something, and then I would find something that I liked more. And I would think, oh, well, I hope I don't get that other thing that I just applied for, because I like this thing more, which was ridiculous, because I was unemployed. <laughs> but I remember talking to a friend at the time, and he, he happens to have the uh, worst case of FOMO I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, FOMO, it's the, the fear of missing out, this idea that people are out there doing things, having fun without you. <laughs> And I don't, have, I don't have FOMO, or at least, I guess, the classic sense of FOMO. A uh, few things make me happier than hanging out on a Saturday night with my partner and my dog, non-euphemistically Netflix and chilling. But I thought about it. So he wants to do all of the things. And I want to do all of the science things. And he has FOMO. Oh, shit. I have science FOMO. And this got me thinking about another all-too-popular feeling, especially in the sciences, imposter syndrome. Uh, those ideas of not feeling like you add up to things, not feeling like you're worthy, not feeling like you're good enough, are felt by um, so many people as we progress throughout our careers. And I didn't necessarily feel like that when I was a researcher, or at least I didn't think I did. I probably did, because we all do. We just think it's normal, because that's how science works. But I felt it when I left academia. And not necessarily that I wasn't good enough, but that I wasn't doing enough. And I think part of this stems from academia itself. As an academic, we are uh, free to and encouraged to do all types of different things. You have to uh, teach, outreach, research, whatever it might be. But in the private or corporate or government sectors, your role is usually more clearly defined. And that's fine. But I think that's why I wanted to do more things. I wanted to keep doing all of the things. All of those side hustles, I'm still doing all of those things. And I keep 
adding stuff to it. I helped start DC Story Collider after I got a full-time job. And I love doing all these things, don't get me wrong. But I think I would feel guilty if I didn't do them. And that's what it comes down to. It's guilt. I, I feel guilty often, almost always. I need to do all of these things because if I don't, I worry about disappointing myself. I worry that if I don't do anything and everything, I'll be less of a scientist or maybe even less of a person. I used to joke around in a non-joking way that I worry when I'm not worried about something. Um, my, my anxiety, it tends to drive me, but it also feeds me. Now, I know that this isn't probably the, the healthiest of behaviors. I'm not, I'm not advocating for this. I'm not um, trying to defend this. Maybe, maybe I am a grass is greener always person, or grass is always greener person. But I want to say, like, I think that no matter what I was doing, no matter what sector I was in, whatever field I was in, that I would still, uh, I would still want to do all the things. No matter how burnt out I get, and I, I often fly too close to the sun, I would still want to do all the things. And even though the motivations behind this are not optimal. The, the results are, I have found a way to take all of this guilt, this worry, this concern, this doubt, and, and turn it into a force for good. Back in that living room, with all of these thoughts rushing through this head, my head, this, um, this now friend staring at me thinking, is he going to answer me anytime soon? I realized something. What do you do? For me, that's a loaded question. I do all sorts of things. Science FOMO has given me the drive, the opportunities, the motivation to do more in science, hell, more in my life than I would have ever thought possible. I don't think I'd be here today without it. I am confident in the decisions I've made regardless of the motivations behind them. So when people ask me, what do you do? Well, not enough. And more than I should. And that's okay. Thank you. That was Shane Hanlon. Shane got a PhD studying frogs and turtles, tried his hand in government, and is now a scientist who teaches scientists how to talk to non-scientists. Shane is also one of Story Collider's two wonderful DC-based producers and co-hosts. He happily lives in Virginia, but still loves D.C., and tries to get outside with his partner and dog as much as possible. Find him on Twitter at Ecology of Shane. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Miriam Zaringhollum and Shane Hanlon, with help from Liz Neely and one of Story Collider's first gentlemen, Ed Young. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Cambridge Junction and Busboys and Poets for hosting these shows, and to the other first gentleman of Story Collider, who is my audience for all of these intros. 
Thanks for listening. And thank you for listening, Justin. Say hi. <laughs> See you next week.